Welcome, everybody. You're quite right that you make the way out on a Friday at lunchtime to come to this talk. Uh, it's great pleasure for us to have the Commissioner Margaret Vestager here. She's one of the strong women of the Commission. I think that Commission could do with more like her and her predecessor and so on. She has been not like so often a Commissioner that's just shooed into fill a national quota. She's, she has been, in a way, long, a long time in coming to this job, and she's almost made her political career just straightforwardly lifted her into this job, I think. She, had a, she has a degree in economics from the Copenhagen University. At the age of the tender age of 21, she already got into some uh, top committee of her social liberal party, including the European, its European Affairs Committee. So she has a long track record of being interested in European uh, politics. She was then a deputy prime minister before she became a, a commissioner here in a three-party coalition, so she knows about compromise politics and having to find, uh, you know, cross-party coalitions. Um, she chaired during the uh, presidency of, the, of, the, of, the, of Denmark in 2012. She chaired the ECOFIN meeting and uh, was then nominated as Denmark's commissioner in 2014 uh, and became, got one of the most important portfolios together probably with economic and financial affairs. So and today she talks to us about the next steps in EU antitrust law. Please join me in welcoming the Commissioner. Well, thank you very much uh, for this uh, warm welcome. Uh, I think you have a tradition here at uh, the London School of Economics of making Danes feel at home. Yes. Uh, at least I have learned that uh, when the Danish Queen was here, she felt very much at home. Well, uh, that's a Queen now as well. Now. Yes. <laughs> Two things. Uh, in days uh, like this, um, when there is a lot of darkness, I think it's very good that uh, we do the effort, or take the effort, uh, to come together in very different backgrounds to discuss things that actually matters to us. Because uh, this is a reflection of the society that we want to have, a society that is free uh, and open. And the attacks in, in Paris last week was exactly attacks to that to people who had joined together just to share each other's company, listen to music, being together, laugh. And therefore, of course, I think everyone feels the same sorrow and grief with the families over the victims. But I think they also left a determination that we will stand together to respond to this and uh, we will not give up our way of life and we will not stop working together to improve the world. And uh, everyone can do their little bit in doing that. And in, in my line of work, uh, we try to do our bit as well uh, to make the world a better place to make the economy work fairly for everyone. 
Now, with this warm introduction, uh, one might think that I'm the person who enforces European competition law. Well, I hate to spoil it, uh, but the Commission actually is only doing a small fraction of that work. And think about it. In the European Union, you find 25 million businesses. We, we only have the ability to look after a small fraction of those. So enforcing European competition law, that has to be a huge team effort. And this team is known as the European Competition Network. And it may sound like sort of a, a back office uh, consideration. Things that just have to be dealt with, never to reach the headlines. But the thing is that if we do not bring it forward, then we can never neither fully appreciate nor support that it's the interplay between law enforcement by the Commission and law enforcement by national agencies that we get the job done. To give you an idea just about the division of labor, since 2004, 85% of the decisions taken has been taken by national authorities. So without these national authorities, consumers could be considerably worse off. I think it's, it's impossible really to grasp uh, competition law enforcement if you do not have a knowledge about how the national agencies are working. So today I want to do two things. Uh, I want to tell you uh, why I think that this way of working in a network has become a success. Uh, but I would also like to take, uh, take it forward. What should be the next uh, steps to make it work even better? Being still relatively new in the job, I had to, to do you know, some reading to try to get into the substance. And I learned that by the turn of the century, it wasn't at all as well-functioning as it is today. Because back then, businesses had to notify all anti-competitive agreements in advance unless they complied with a very, very, very detailed set of rules. So the commission was flooded with notifications. And um, that was uh, unsustainable. So they had to, to figure out how to be able to prioritize, how to make sure that we do uh, the right work, the work that actually has the scope to influence the life of citizens, to enable them to thrive, to have a fair chance, chance in the marketplace. So we needed to simplify, and we needed to empower member states so that we can work closely with national authorities. So, 2003, the practices of notifying agreement was ended. The national competition authorities were given, very, uh, were given full power to uh, apply the EU competition rules. And to make sure that these rules were applied everywhere, the European Competition Network was created. Now, more than 10 years later, uh, this network, I think, especially the European Competition Network, has been a great success. And that is because we make the best of each other. Not because that we do the same thing, but that we make the best of each other's effort. Uh, and one of the things, of course, is that the local 
national authorities, they bring a great familiarity with how national markets and local markets actually work. Because you cannot enforce competition law if you don't know the markets. Sometimes you have to be very close in order actually to grasp what is going on. Uh, one example would be that the then uh, UK authority, the, um, the OFT, they started carrying out their own investigation into trucks. Uh, after reviewing the evidence that they found, after exchanging with the European Commission, the OFT concluded that the Commission should take the, t the case forward as part of its ongoing investigation of the European truck industry. Uh, in Europe, we have about 600,000 transport businesses. Uh, very few of them, uh, but some, would use bicycles. Uh, most of them, they would have trucks. So it has huge influence how this is actually uh, done. Um, now we have uh, sent, actually for a couple of months ago, the statement of objections to a huge number of uh, truck companies because we have found the evidence uh, that implies to us that there has been a, a truck cartel over a number of years making trucks more expensive and making it more difficult to get sort of the, the newest up-to-date uh, versions um, uh, applying uh, environmental standards. One example. Another example could be the food sector. This is an area where the, the cooperation uh, between the Commission and the national authorities uh, has been key. Over the past few years, national authorities, they have cracked down uh, cartels when it comes to the price of seed of farmers, uh, busted uh, national uh, cartels in, in food items like pasta or bread, very, very basic everyday items. So in a number of respects, the, the work of the national authorities is essential. And they also, I think, gives us a platform for the advocacy for competition. In 2012, the network issued a um, resolution to the reform of the common agricultural policy to feed in the renew that was ongoing back then. So it makes a huge difference. And this is only possible because we share the same set of goals. Uh, they ensure that the same standards apply everywhere, regardless of who enforces them. And they enable us to learn from each other, because a network is also a network where people come together physically, where they actually meet, they know each other, they know who to call, they know who to uh, ask if they have a question that they know others have answered before them. And uh, some of them also work together in answering some of the newer challenges. For instance, the UK and the French authorities have been looking into the digital markets. And one of the things that they have been focusing on is how can consumers change from one digital ecosystem to another? Uh, anyone who has tried that would know that, mm, take kind of an effort. And you would see that by now we're trying to promote proposals which should allow portability, that you can come from one ecosystem to another ecosystem, that you're not, as a citizen or as a consumer, completely locked in just because that you have your subscription in one place and you have all your photos and all your music, etc., etc., in one place, making it very tricky to shift to another. Second is that um, 
They are also about to con- conduct a joint study as to uh, how companies can gain uh, market power by accumulating large amounts of uh, personal information. You would know this tricky question as the question of big data. And we will work with them on this because for us, big data is one of the great things that we have to incorporate, both when it comes to antitrust, but of course also when it comes to uh, merger control. Because big data becomes an asset. It can become a barrier to entry in a certain market if you have to have volumes of data which may prevent you actually to go there. And there, of course, obviously, it's of EU-wide interest because businesses working in big data, well, they do that completely ignorant of any kind of national border. So we try to commit and contribute with the European perspective and we coordinate closely. But um, the obvious question is then, well, if it's that good, is it then perfect? Well, we share the same rules by principle. Uh, But anyone would know that no rule is any good if it's not enforced. It all depends on enforcement. You can have a beautiful set of rules. But if no one follows these rules, and no one bothers to make sure that rules are followed, well, then we do not have a set of rules that actually works. And um, sometimes the network would do a recommendation. And that's very, very fine. But uh, recommendations, they have limits. They have limits when it comes to gathering evidence, the level of fines, the independence and impartiality of the work being done. And that, of course, becomes a problem for businesses and consumers. Uh, so just let me walk you through uh, very quickly these different uh, areas. First on how to gather evidence. Every, uh, every part of our society, every part of our economy is being digitalized. And um, that, of course, also goes for catalysts. They are also digital by now. As everyone here, they would have their personal data on their smartphone, on their portable computer, in the cloud. But some national agencies, they do not have the provisions to collect that kind of evidence. They have to stay with what has been put on paper, and obviously, that doesn't really make sense. We don't always just, you know, act on our own ideas. Uh, very often we act on people uh, turning each other in. We have a very strong leniency program. And if you're the one to turn the others in, well, then your fine may be reduced to zero. Quite attractive. We just find a number of uh, companies who made a cartel of optical disk drivers. I can see some of you having my age. You remember we put a DVD into a machine and then a movie would come forward. Yes? Yes, some will know this very old school technology. Um, They obviously felt threatened in their markets, so they made a cartel. Some of these businesses, they paid millions uh, of euros in fines, some 7 million, some 37 millions, which is quite a big fine, makes a difference by the end of the month. But one company paid zero fine. It was a company who turned in the others. 
And uh, I kind of like this. <laughs> because uh, what it puts into, into the mind of whomever cartelist is that maybe you shouldn't necessarily trust the others. Because as in any fall play, you need to be able to trust the others to get the game moving. And if you have to look over your shoulder and wonder which one of those comrades in crime will turn the other one in, then you have exactly the insecurity that you need in order to rattle the cage. And um, then, of course, it should be done in a reasonable way. If you're the first one to turn the others in, that should be recognized in every jurisdiction. But actually, it doesn't. And um, some competition authorities, they, they treat applications for leniency in a different way. So it's not always clear who was first. Because obviously, you realize that if one has turned the other in, then everyone wants to become number two because number two gets a discount. Not zero fine, but a discount. So we have kind of a run to be number two. And I don't think I, I have to lecture any of you about the importance of, for, of uh, forming an orderly queue. It is, as I, I see it, a very strong British value. And of course, that value has taken you know, us deep into the European continent. We want that as well. So also in that, change may be needed. Now I was talking about fines. If, uh, if one jurisdiction takes the case instead of another, the fine may be 20 times larger or 20 times smaller uh, than in the other jurisdiction. This is kind of strange because it can be completely the same uh, offence that has been performed. So we're not uh, quite there yet. And some castles, unfortunately, they go on for years. And what they do is that they shift uh, value from consumers to the cartels. Uh, we just had a, a cartel find on food packaging. Uh, it's not much. You know them. You have them in your hand almost every day, these foam, ba uh, foam things that would wrap uh, vegetables or whatever. Spinning cartels all, all over Europe, this, it's not much on the individual item, but it amounts to quite something when you add it up together because you use millions and millions of these items all over Europe every day. It's like a small hidden tax on the consumer that's to be paid every day. And of course, we need the fine to, to sort of reflect the, the entire cartelized uh, period of time. Some jurisdictions can only make a fine for part of that time. And why I'm so, so occupied with the finding thing is that if the fine is just another line in your spreadsheet and you just have to make sure that the profits of the cartel are sufficient also to pay the fine, well, why not? So in order to have sufficient deterrent, we need to introduce risk that you cannot trust the other and that the fine is sufficiently big to actually deter you so that it's not worth the risk. Getting to the, the end of this, um, for me it's a very strong value uh, that we enforce competition. That, of course, is not in any way surprising. It kind of goes with the job, I guess. Um, but in enforcing competition law, we have to work in everyone's interest. 
uh, above all, in the interest of citizens. Because I don't want to see uh, the European markets develop into a place where companies can agree to charge high prices to consumers with no fear of competition. And I don't want to see innovation crossed by powerful players with vested interests in things staying exactly as they are. And these are very good reasons to make sure that competition actually works. Because this will give every company, big, small, old, startup, a fair fighting chance in the market. And I think this is a value that is shared all over the European Union, in every member state, because it's a question of fairness, that you should be at least allowed to give it a fair fighting chance. Consumers may not like your product. That can happen. Happens probably every day. But you should have a fair fighting chance, no matter where you come from. And... uh, Therefore, of course, we also need competition authorities to have the trust of the population that this is exactly what they're doing. And uh, that competition uh, enforcing decisions are taken for the right reasons. Not to protect competitors, not to sweet talk or to follow any government uh, instruction, but to act for the common good. And I think there are two ways to ensure that trust. One is, of course, that you, by legal means are given a sufficient uh, guarantee that you can work impartially. Um, That is quite obvious a way to go. Uh, Not all uh, European uh, authorities uh, enjoy these uh, guarantees. There is also an obvious lesser uh, or a less obvious approach. Um, The companies that we are dealing with, some of them are huge. They have large resources. They would invest uh, in very uh, good advisors, very high-paid, very skilled lawyers. And, um, of course, any authority should have sort of the possibility to counteract that. Uh, And one thing is, of course, that they should be able to do, for instance, a down rate at several uh, places at the same time. And they should be able to buy the tools that can enable them actually to go through thousands and thousands of documents stored digitally. Because you need that kind of tool. In the truck investigation that I mentioned before, uh, in our services, uh, they went through more than 300,000 documents in order to find the evidence that they were looking for. And in that, you need to do data mining, you need to do proper search, and you need to have the tools to do so. And that, uh, of course, is also for the national competition authorities to have these tools. I don't think that we should all be the same. I think that there are plenty of room still for national differences, respecting national tradition and national wishes. Uh, For instance, here in the UK, a new authority has been in place now for 18 months, it has gained much stronger investigative and enforcement powers than it used to have. And this is very, very welcome. But if you look at other agencies, you'd find that there are still gaps. And I think that the time has come to make sure that no matter where you live in the European Union, you can rest assured that your national authorities 
have a toolbox with at least a minimum set of tools to enforce uh, laws that will actually help you have a fair market. And um, I hope that some of you with an interest of competition will actually file your thoughts on these issues. Uh, Because when we prepare any kind of legislation in the Commission, we're very dependent on our public consultations. Because we try to listen. What is what matters? What is worth it? So if any of you can persuade any of your teachers to uh, do a paper on, uh, on the European Competition Network and its future, well, better get it done before 12th of February. Because that's when our public consultation is ended. But uh, I would truly welcome any thoughts uh, on these uh, matters. It's not harmonization. It's not going into the detail. But it is kind of... I don't think if you can can be that uh, pragmatic in in principle to make sure that we actually do get the bad guys because we have the tools to enforce. Maybe some of you would have appreciated uh, an update on the Google case or what is the state of play when it comes to the state aid tax investigations. Or what would be my thoughts of uh, the UK relationship with the European Union? And these are all important issues. Uh, But actually, I can offer you no new perspectives on the Google case. And uh, the UK relationship with the European Union is above all a matter for the British people. So what I've tried to do is to share with you something that I think would never hit the headlines. But uh, that's actually crucial for the way that we're working. And it's crucial for the balance between national and European enforcement. It may be uh, less visible than some of the more spectacular things that we're doing. It doesn't make it less important. Because if we can facilitate a team effort that actually enables consumers to enjoy a market that's open, innovative, with affordable prices and uh, quality according to that, well, then we have done a good job. And uh, in doing that, I think we also bring life to some very fundamental values. Values of equal opportunity, values of due process, values of equal treatment. And maybe in doing that, we uh, also add a little bit more fairness to how the markets work. Because we should never accept that big companies or all companies set the rules, dictate the rules, are allowed to change the rules of the game. Because the market should be truly open to newcomers. I bet that some of you have in the back head the idea for your own business. The one that will truly disturb some of the incumbents. You should have a fair chance of making it. And therefore, I think it's very important that we work as a team. Because if we work as a team, well, the better results we make. And then, hopefully, that's how we make a difference. Thank you.
I mean, Margaret Evistaya says she, she doesn't think she, this will make headlines, but I can already see, you know, uh, the commissioner says, learn from the Brits, whistleblowers form an orderly queue. Um, that is a good headline, I think. In the, I was so eager to introduce her to you that I didn't introduce myself. I'm Walter Czerkli, a political economist from the European Institute, and I forgot, of course, to say that this is an LSE European Institute Perspectives on Europe uh, lecture. And finally, that there is a hashtag for this event, <laughs> hashtag LSE Vestaya. Okay, you probably figured that out anyhow. So I'm taking questions. Please briefly introduce yourself. Just say what your affiliation is, and then we'll get off. Be brief and succinct. First person here, wait for the roaming mic. Just one moment. Uh, Patrick Gow from Bloomberg. Uh, how are settlement talks going with Gazprom, uh, and what's the sticking point? And what do you think of Google's arguments against the statement of objections? Yes, by all means. Um, the prehistory of the two cases go back uh, quite a while. Uh, we sent the statement of objection both to Gazprom and to Google in spring. Uh, by autumn, uh, both companies answered, and that's basically what they have in common. Um, because the two cases are, of course, very, very different. Uh, the state of play goes as such that uh, for the Google case, we are in the process of analyzing their responses. Uh, that takes us to do more uh, search of data uh, in order to, to validate the response, and we spend a lot of time in, in doing that. Same goes with the Gazprom case. Uh, we're analyzing their formal response, but we're also having a dialogue with uh, Gazprom uh, as to the sort of the substance uh, of the case. Um, I can give you uh, no deadline as to when we will finalize the analysis of, of their responses, uh, and therefore also no hint as to what we think about the content of, uh, of their responses. Yes, next. Here in the front, please. Hi, my name is Silky. I'm a student at the LSE and the president of the LSE-SU Nordic Society. Um, in regards to these um, investigations into the taxations of multinational companies such as Amazon and Fiat and Starbucks, how do we solve the problem of data protection when those investigations get to a higher level within the EU and therefore not protected by previous re in reinforcement on that, on that level? Well, for us, it's a, it's a very, very concrete matter as to how to protect the data that we take on board. And uh, we have a number of, um, of in-house measures in order for businesses, when they give us business confidential in, in, information, to protect that. Um, for instance, if we do a statement of objection, then the business who receives this statement of objection will also then be given access to file to see what is the evidence, what do we have here. Uh, and before given access to file, of course, we ask some of the people who have provided us with data, um, how can this be done in order not to expose one business to another business? And that is very concretely done in the way that access to file is set up. Uh, and I think, in general, it works uh, quite well. There is much broader uh, discussions of... Uh, 
of uh, data protection come to that. And uh, my colleague, uh, Vera uh, Jurova, is in charge with the negotiations with the Americans when it comes to safe harbor. You know, we had a judgment by the European Court very recently uh, saying that we couldn't continue uh, with the way that safe harbor regulation was done, meaning that we sort of agreed that if, if you have one set of rules here and another set of rules here, we sort of recognize that this set of rules is also sufficient. But we have sort of opened a new chapter as to how to relate to the U.S. when it comes to, to data protection. Because, you know, the European standards when it comes to data protection are quite high, and it's a thing that we take very closely. Just wait for the roaming mic, please. My name's Dermot Ryan. I'm, I'm a lawyer at a law firm called Squire Patent Box. Uh, you mentioned the, the enhanced uh, powers of investigation of the CMA, and I may have, I had the least, I thought there was a suggestion that you thought that would be a good model for the rest of Europe. I was just wondering what you thought in particular about their, their powers to subject individuals to compulsory interviews and whether that would even be compatible with the case law of the, of the Court of Justice as regards the rights of, the, of defense and the rights against self-incrimination. Actually, I'm, I'm not suggesting that everyone should do the same. Uh, I think that the choices made in the UK are choices that is uh, relevant and right for the UK situation. In that, I make no judgment as to say that everyone should do the same. I um, more take note of the fact that one has put a keen interest into enable investigation and enforcement to a different level than before. And in that, I think there is an example to take. Um, the, the public uh, consultation that is open right now is not to suggest that we should harmonize or take one model and make that best practice, but to say that maybe we can agree on a set of tools uh, and powers that should be enjoyed uh, with every national authority and then still allow for a number of differences. Because we have different court practices, we have different legal traditions in member states, also when it comes to fining, how to work with the court system, etc. And, uh, and I think it would be too far-reaching uh, to have sort of a, a more harmonized approach uh, to the system. Here in the middle. Mark Falcon, independent consultant. Uh, could you say something about, about the um, mobile mergers, the implications of the Denmark and Germany for the current UK merger between um, Telefonica and Hutchison, in, in particular whether or not MVNOs can be an adequate uh, remedy for loss of competition between MNOs? I, I cannot comment on on the merger that's open right now, it's on, on our table uh, right now, the British uh, merger. But I can say that what we do is that we look at, at uh, the telco markets uh, on a case-by-case -case, uh, way of working. The tricky thing is that even though I think four holdings would actually have 60% of the European subscribers... So you have sort of a pan-European approach for some of these telco, the biggest one. Uh, you still have very national markets. Because if, if you get annoyed that prices go up, well, you can't just turn to uh, your neighboring country and do a subscription there. Uh, because mm -hmm. the prices would probably, you know, by itself forbid that because of roaming charges 
and you can't be, even with the new set of rules to abandon roaming, be a permanent roamer. So the markets are very national. And uh, what we saw, for instance, in, in the Danish market is a very mature market. Uh, very, lots and lots and lots and lots of people uh, would have uh, a mo- mobile subscri- subscription. Uh, the use of data is very, very developed. So what we found was that there was uh, risk of uh, less competition, both in, in private, business, wholesale, all over the board. Uh, and that made the Danish uh, case uh, special. But what I have learned from, from reading on previous mergers and working with mergers myself is that if achievable, a structural remedy is better than a behavioral remedy uh, because it, it enables competition uh, to be uh, stronger. But what that means for, for the British case uh, still remains to be seen, obviously, because we take that specifically. Uh, that also means that we have no uh, politics of numbers. Uh, I think that would be wrong to say that, in general, you can always see that three or four or whatever number is the magic number, no matter what your phone might tell you, um, because we do it on a case-by-case basis. I would briefly like to ask myself a question. Um, if I got the message of your, your speech right, you were really appealing to the citizens and saying, look, we are, we're doing your job in consultation, in cooperation with national authorities. This is to the advantage of the citizens, which would suggest that you become much more forceful in, in intervening in retail markets and competition there. When one looks at the balance of competences, this review that the British government has done and then more or less buried because it didn't find so much to uh, reclaim, in the competition uh, report, which is pretty big, it basically says we have no problems with the competition authority of the European Union. That is overall really in the interest of, of Britain. Where we have a problem with is that the EU now becomes ever more active in the retail markets and in consumer protection, consumer policy. That adds to the burden, the regulatory burden. And while I see why you politically, you, the Commission, wants, the EU wants politically to, to show that you're on the side of the citizens, that's politic for you. How does that, you know, square with that the member states actually don't want you to be there in the same way? I think part of the reason uh, is, well, there is more reason than just siding with citizens. Because, for instance, if you look at the the single market, if you have very different consumer protection rules, people, businesses may think, no, it's way too complicated. I stay in my national market because I don't know what will hit me if I start to sell things in the neighboring market. Uh, That we are discussing uh, at the moment uh, because, for instance, we see in in e-commerce that you still have very national uh, e-commerce, which is kind of strange uh, because the differences between setting up a a brick-and-mortar shop uh, in another country and then having your uh, e-shop translated into, well, in this country, hardly to any other language, but if it's French into English or if it's German into, into French, whatever, well, it's, it's almost no trouble. Mm-hmm. And yet we see that less than 10% of our SMEs do cross-border uh, e-commerce. 
which is thought-provoking. That instead of having 506 million potential customers, you say, no, I, don't, I just want my own national customers. And one of the suggestions is that there can be uh, contractual barriers. Uh, of course, there can be language barriers, but it can also be a barrier that some businesses feel insecure as to what is the consumer protection side of this. Mm -hmm. And that we are discussing uh, at the moment. So it's not just a question of adding red tape. Sometimes it's also a question of, could this be done in an easier way? Next question. In the corner over there. Thank you. Alexander Ivanovsky, Queen Mary University of London. Uh, you recently uh, adopted negative decisions in the, in the stated cases against uh, 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 Starbucks and Fiat. So uh, would you, I, I know there are no set deadlines, but would you be able sort of to, uh, to share when, what are your expectations in terms of the other ongoing investigations about Apple and uh, Amazon? Thank you. Yes, you're right. It is only a few weeks back uh, that we took the decision on, on um, the relationship between uh, Luxembourg uh, and the Netherlands and the two companies in question. And the decisions are addressed to the member states because when you use a state aid tool, what you are investigating is if one company has been given a selective advantage which is not available to another company. Uh, because state aid control is all about selectivity, effects to trade, uh, use of public money, and these are sort of our main criteria. And um, it's, it's quite uh, complicated uh, to investigate these cases and, of course, to prove them as well. Uh, and, of course, we should live up to the highest standards because there is always a probability that we'll meet in court. And uh, the court, of course, will hear nothing of politics. Courts will have data, interpretation of data, evidence, interpretation of evidence. That's what they're listening to. And that's why we're being very, very thorough uh, in how we do the casework. And um, therefore, to get sufficient data on board, it takes quite a while. So there'll still be a while before we're done with the Amazon and, uh, and the Apple case. Um, we opened another investigation, uh, which is not on a specific company, but which is on a Belgian scheme, um, where the idea is that if you're a multinational, then you make kind of a, an extra profit, which is then not taxed, compared to a standalone company, which is not supposed to make these synergy profits, uh, which then is fully taxed. And that, of course, uh, caught our attention so that we are investigating uh, as well. And looking to the future, I think, I think it's very important to, to show that here we also work in the interest of business and the citizen because two businesses may compete Main Streets 14 and Main Street 16, one paying the taxes, one not paying the taxes. That's an obvious uh, unlevel playing field. And I think there is a second thing at stake as well because... Ever since the financial crisis, citizens have experienced that their governments have done, you know, things that they wouldn't have thought of before in order to get in control of their budgets. Uh, they have uh, lowered salaries of public employees in a number of countries. 
they have uh, cotton benefits, they have uh, uh, had higher VIT, uh, maybe they have had higher personal income taxes. So obviously people expect not that only some businesses contribute, but that every business contributes. And uh, I think in that you find that there is an element of fairness as well. Also because, in my opinion, the huge majority of businesses, they pay their taxes. And one could expect that every business pay their taxes. Question here and then in the very back. Tim King. I'm I'm a Brussels-based journalist, so I apologise for (laughs) gatecrashing on a London event. Um, But to pick up on, you've talked about the importance of this national network and that really the European European competition in regulation is dependent, is built up on these national pillars as it were. But tell us to what extent do you get complaints about the quality of enforcement in these member states? And what do you do with those complaints within a structure in the Commission that is, in your department, is probably more arranged on sectoral lines rather than a national overview. What do, you, what do you do with them, and do you attribute problems to a lack of resources, a lack of education, or a lack of will, or what? Well, to, to my knowledge, we get uh, very few complaints, uh, because basically since national authorities works nationally, it's very hard for people to compare. Uh, it's also hard for a business to compare, to say, oh, if I had been charged in the other member state, my fine would have been much lower. It's, it's kind of awkward to come forward with that statement. Um, so it's, it's more sort of a matter of um, empowering member states to make sure that the enforcement have sort of a, a more common uh, minimum standard as how enforcement tool can be used. And we've been doing sort of a very thorough um, uh, survey of um, uh, tools, resources, independence in all member states. And we find a quite mixed picture. Uh, You find that something is absolutely as you could ever wish for. You find some places where you say, well, it's just a tweak of of a paragraph and then it would be independent and they have sufficient resources and sufficient tools. And in other member states, you'd find that it's a tool site that is truly challenging, for instance, if you can't do uh, search for digital evidence. So it's a rather broad picture, uh, actually. Um, and since, since we supplement each other uh, so strongly, I think, I think it would be a good thing if it's not if a matter of, of coincidence, if it's one national authority that takes on a case or another national authority that takes on a case what would be uh, the outcome when it comes to the level of enforcement? At the very back, there was a question. Hi there. Uh, Greg Donovan. I'm a law student here at LSE. Uh, I'd like to build off the question from earlier on telcos, uh, particularly with regards to your comment on structural solutions uh, for mergers. Uh, when an acquisition has been announced and the commercial terms have been agreed, 
the national authority and the EU um, competition authority have determined that um, the pro forma um, competition landscape is less competitive than desired. How do those conversations go with the company um, to, number one, help uh, determine assets or spectrum to spin off? And um, how, do you, like, how does the EU competition authority work with the local national authorities? And then um, lastly, is it possible, out of sheer curiosity, to provide an anecdote of an interesting conversation that you've had um, with companies that has been particularly challenged? Well, for instance, one of, of the things we do when we do a, a merger that is cross-border is that, uh, uh, or has sufficient size to, to be of a European scale, is that very often we take on board uh, staff from the national authority in order to have someone on our staff who also know the situation uh, on ground uh, and who can supplement people in our staff who also have language knowledge in order to have the most competent uh, team. Second is that sometimes things would be pre-notified before they are formally notified because when it comes to merger control, we work with very strict deadlines. Uh, And that is, of course, uh, to oblige us to accommodate mergers uh, and to be able to move things uh, forward because if businesses want to merge, of course, they want to get it done. Very often they would pre-notify in order to allow us to get to know the business better. Uh, and that is, of course, very helpful because then when the notification sort of starts rolling, then you really know what you're dealing with if it's a market which is not the most sort of merger-prone market that you've been working with previously. Uh, then what you do is that you try to figure out how would this merger influence the market situation. Uh, you see how the market is defined. And in that, I was quite disappointed because I heard a lot when I was preparing my hearing with the European Parliament about this market definition and the market definition tool. And I said, oh, it's the ivory tower pen. Uh, I am to define markets. Uh, That was completely wrong uh, because basically what you do is that you take note of how the market uh, is. And you do that by using quite sophisticated uh, tools to figure out... um, where can the consumer turn to if prices go up? And as long as the consumer can turn to someone else, well, then you haven't reached sort of the borders of the market yet. The uh, problem with the telco sector is that very often the national border will also be the border of the market. Um, so therefore you have very often a national border, and then you see, well, what happens then? What is the risk for private subscribers, for business subscribers in wholesale? And then, of course, if we have concerns, if there are overlaps uh, or you get very high market shares, then, of course, we would uh, discuss our findings with the companies in question. And they would come back with their arguments of why we're wrong. Uh, And sometimes they're right, then we revise. Uh, And sometimes we find that they're not right. And and then we talk to them about how to remedy this situation. And uh, then, of course they also have the deadlines as to when should a remedy be put on the table from the business side. And if we get to a situation where we say, well, this remedy might actually work, it might ensure that we still have a competitive market, then we would market test it. So that we ask uh, uh, competitors, consumers, do you think this will work? 
And then, of course, we try to take, uh, take into consideration that there can be an element of games if a competitor should evaluate uh, how would the market look uh, looking forward. Uh, but then if the market test is fine and people say, well, we can work with this, then the merger can move forward. So it's a quite intense, um, quite uh, data-heavy uh, procedure, but it also involves sort of very basic talking to people, listening to their arguments, taking on board how they see their markets. Very good. One last question here, straight in the front. Thank you. I'm uh, Nicholas. I'm a student here at LSE. I want to ask you a question about the next big target on your list. Uh, and my guess is going to be uh, container shipping. And, and here's why. And you can tell me if you think I'm wrong or right. So <laughs> container shipping companies have a big problem with the price at the moment. They're running at a loss. And how they solve this is two reasons. So first, they signal prices. So market leaders will raise prices and then hope others will follow. That creates problems, I think. Secondly, they will do alliances with vessel sharing, meaning that companies will go together and then share ships. That also means that there's a big risk of also aligning prices. At the moment, and it's been going on for a long time, I think the last five, ten years, the container shipping lines have, have, have run like this. And the three biggest ones are all in Europe, and they have just short of 50% of world market share. Is, is container shipping uh, a worry for, for the European Commission of Competition? Well, I'm sorry to deprive you of the next big one because it is already on the table. <laughs> so it's not the next. Uh, we had a, a merger uh, a couple of years ago uh, where one uh, company had to step out of one of the alliances of which it was part in order to enable competitions on the route where they were actually sailing as a remedy to, to what they wanted to do. Uh, so that was quite, you know, forcefully put in place because you're right, it's a, it's a very special market. Second thing is that uh, we are still discussing and have actually been done for some time exactly the issue of price signaling uh, because you're right in saying that it is kind of gives you a concern that some people would signal future prices maybe uh, six months in the future instead of just telling uh, their customers uh, the cost of actually having things shipped. Um, so we look into that uh, with exactly the same concern that uh, that you have um, that you have uh, worded here. So uh, I have to challenge you to, to come with the, the real next uh, where we should put our attention uh, because uh, you must follow it very closely. Very good. So all under control. That's crazy to hear. <laughs> I really think so. It's good to hear that the EU Competition Authority has these targets already on its table. I guess this just leads me to thank you all for coming and thank the Commissioner for giving us a very good and interesting lecture. It was a pleasure.